Well, last week, I said that the flood was an historic and reflective and deliberative and purposeful event. And quite honestly, if I were to preach it again, hindsight being 2020, I think I would change the outline a bit and simply say that the flood was an historic event, it was a universal event, and it was a redemptive event. Um, just thought I'd share that with you. Um, I, it just seems to flow a bit better and, and kind of bring it in a little tighter. But the, but the one thing I wouldn't do for sure is I would not change um, the introduction or the emphasis on judgment. Despite the fact that I received word from many of you that it was definitely heavy. But we have to understand that the first half of the story from Genesis 6-9 through the end of 7 is all about the idea of decreation. And the second half of the story from verse eight, or chapter uh, 8, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 17, emphasizes recreation. Um, and I also firmly believe that we need to, and ladies, you heard me at Bible study on Wednesday morning say this, that we need to understand the weight of judgment if we're going to fully understand the relief of grace. So that's why I wouldn't change anything. But all that being said, while we remain in that first half of the story tonight in chapter 7, which again focuses on the idea of decreation, my goal is actually going to be to focus our attention on the relief of grace. I'm not going to ignore the weight of judgment. We can't ignore the weight of judgment. It's there. But what I want us to do is Focus on and draw out the relief of grace that is present in the midst of judgment. Okay. So our outline in the normal place in your bulletin looks like this. We're going to look at the provision of the flood, the preparation of the flood, the preservation through the flood, and the prevailing waters of the flood. Okay. And children, your words are in their normal spot as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, come in these moments to hear your word preached, and so I would ask that you would give us humble and contrite uh, hearts, spirits. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us this evening. Enlighten our eyes and our, and our hearts, awaken our attention that we might receive all that you have for us tonight. Uh, attend with power. I pray your truth preached, and I pray that we would be convicted and edified and refreshed and comforted in these moments. Grant me grace as always, fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you this evening. My desire is to do something good for you and for your church, so may that be so. In Jesus' name, I ask these things, amen and amen. Well. Of course, before we jump into the provision that's present uh, here, the provision for the flood, we need to, again, 
we may not need to, but I'm going to. I'm going to remind us of the context, right? We need to have the context in the forefront of our minds. So in verse 5 of chapter 6, we read these words, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And then when we move down to verse 11, it says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So mankind is in this process of self-destructing. Everything is, is caving in, and God looks at this vast, I said last week, this vast pit of degradation. And in verse 13, we read these words. He says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then in verse 17, we read that he says, I will bring, he, or he said, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which uh, is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then in, cha- or in chapter 7, verse 4, we just heard Grant read that the Lord said, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. As I mentioned last week, this wasn't an impulsive or an arbitrary decision. The Lord is not capricious. This was also a decision that He, uh, it, it wasn't a decision that He took pleasure in. Sin, sin deeply grieved Him. But his response was just. It was a just response. It was also a proportionate response. You remember I said that the severity of the flood was proportionate to the depravity of man's heart. Judgment, the judgment rendered was no more or no less what the sinful heart of man deserved. I read this to you last week. I want to share it again. Legan Duncan put it this way. He said, when we see the scale of judgment in in the flood, God's judgment in the flood, it's a picture of the perversity of man's heart, the pervasiveness of man's sin, and the heinousness of man's sin in the sight of God. So he who created is now, as I've said already, is now in the process, we're reading him in the process of decreating. He who had produced would now ruin. He who had raised R-I-S-E-D would now raise R-A-Z-E. He who had given would is now taking away. Um, and it was his prerogative to do so. It was the Creator's prerogative to do what he needed to do with his creation. And he could do that and he did do that comprehensively and immediately and swiftly. But it's in the midst of that divine judgment that we see God provide for Noah. In chapter 6, verse 8, we see that God found favor or extended grace to Noah. Of course, by definition, that favor, it was not merited by him. Nothing that the Lord did was merited by Noah. In the words of John Calvin, the origin of this favor was God's gratuitous mercy. I love that. Right? The origin of God's favor was His gratuitous 
mercy. The Lord, the Lord lifted up Noah out of the muck and mire of that corruption and depravity, the perversion and the violence, and set his feet on solid ground. The writer of Hebrews says, Noah became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, the blamelessness that that Moses describes, the blamelessness that Noah displayed from that day forward was fruit of righteousness. And that righteousness came by faith. Righteousness always comes by faith. He wasn't perfect. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks. But he did strive to honor the Lord. He did strive to to live according to God's standard of right and wrong. He did strive to and desire to be an upright man who glorified God in all things. He treasured his communion with God deeply. But all of that was a result of God's grace. As a matter of fact, we could put it another way and we could say that even Noah's blamelessness and his obedience were provisions from the Lord. Listen again to these words of Calvin. He says, we must observe in the first place that God loves men freely and that he finds nothing in them except what deserves to be hated since all men are born children of wrath and heirs of eternal malediction." He adopts them to Himself in Christ and justifies them through His sheer mercy. After He has in this way reconciled them to Himself, He also regenerates them by His Spirit to new life and righteousness. From this flow good deeds which are pleasing to God Himself. Thus, He not only loves the faithful but also their deeds. He must again note that since our deeds are never perfect, it is possible that they can be approved except as a matter of mercy. God's grace, therefore, and not any merit in the deeds themselves is what makes our deeds worthy in God's sight. So, in other words, Noah's blamelessness and obedience, the good things that, that God, the good things that Noah did that God saw and took into account and blessed him for, were actually gracious gifts from God. God provided for Noah and then turned right around and blessed Noah for having them and for for doing them. The grace of God is such that in the words of Augustine, God crowns His own gifts. He provides the gifts and then blesses those who possess those gifts. But his provision didn't stop there. That was enough, but his provision didn't stop there. God gave Noah explicit and detailed instructions as to what he was to do, and then he provided the time and the resources necessary to fulfill those instructions. He also provided Noah with the confidence and the boldness that he needed to be, in Peter's words, that herald of righteousness. For 120 years, Noah proclaimed and preached to a perverse generation and then lived in such a way in the midst of that uh, perverse generation that his life confirmed rather than contradicted the, the message that he preached. 
And then, we just heard Grant read, we're told multiple times, starting in 6, but then a couple times in 7, too, a little bit elongated as well, that God provided the animals that were needed to repopulate the earth. And that, of course, would have provided Noah with that hope for the future. It would have provided him hope that they were going to survive and that the world was going to be restored. But God provided more than the animals needed to repopulate. He also provided animals that would be used for atoning sacrifices that Noah needed to make on behalf of himself and his family. No one knew, no one knew what clean and unclean animals were. He had to because that's what God told. God said, here are the, here are the clean ones, here are the unclean ones. Or, or, or gather the clean ones and the unclean ones. No one, no one knew what they were to be for. And of course we do too from our study of Exodus. While they were being delivered through the devastating flood of judgment... That judgment was only partial. Noah and his family were going to bring sin into the new creation. And that sin would need to be atoned for. So the animals would be used as atoning substitutionary sacrifices that would provide the propitiation they needed. Or those sacrifices would appease God's anger and restore His favor. Those sacrifices would also provide expiation. They would provide, or they would be used to pay the wages of sin and remove their guilt. Over and over and over again, God provides. God provided for Noah. And brothers and sisters, continually, over and over and over again, the Lord provides for us. Does He not? In the midst of of the world in which we live, a world under judgment, we've found favor in His sight. It's not something we've merited. It's not something we've earned or deserved. We, too, are recipients of God's gratuitous mercy. We who deserve judgment for our sin have been found not guilty. We have found favor in His sight. We've We've been lavished, right? He has chosen, rather to give us what we deserve, He's chosen to lavish us with grace. We're recipients of the gift of faith. We're recipients of the gift of salvation that we receive through the gift of His Son and the work that He has done on our behalf. We're recipients of the Spirit who indwells us and seals us. We're the recipients of the Spirit's gifts. And we're to exercise those gifts to do what? To do the good works that are gifts that God has prepared before us that we should walk in them. He has given us His Word. His Word teaches us. It reproves us. It corrects us. It trains us in righteousness. He's given us His Word that is everything that we need for life and godliness. He gives us peace and the present. He gives us hope for the future. He provides rest for our souls. And we could go on. We are recipients of the gratuitous mercy of God.
And that brings us for the, to the preparation for the flood. And that preparation can be summarized in one statement that said four times. First, we saw it last week in six, uh, chapter 6, verse 22. We see it this week three times in chapter 7 and verses 5, 19, and 16. And the phrase is simply this, and Noah did all God commanded him. Having received the instructions, idleness was not an option for Noah, so Noah sought to live according to God's standard of right and wrong. Noah preached, he built the ark, he gathered the animals, he gathered the food. And Calvin put it this way, he said, Moses, command, uh, Moses commends Noah's constant obedience to all of God's commandments. It's as if he says that in whatever particular way it pleased God to test his obedience, Noah always remained faithful. Noah had been told what was to come and lived faithfully preparing for that based solely upon the word of the Lord, even to the point of entering the ark. He did everything he was, he did everything he was commanded to do, even entering the ark, even before the chaos broke out. He simply did what he was told to do. And the fact that Moses tells us twice that Noah was 600 years old, reminds us that his faith in his obedience didn't wane, but remained constant even as he grew older and even in the un- when the ungodly mockery and ridicule increased. And of course, beloved, idleness is not an option for you or me either. We are not to grow weary in serving the Lord. We're not to grow weary as we prepare for His return. In light of God's gratuitous mercy, right, in, in light of God's favor and His provision that He has given to us, we're to present ourselves as living sacrifices. We're to be living sacrifices out of gratitude and in praise during the time between the already and the not yet. His word tells us we're to live according to his standard of right and wrong. We're told that we're to desire to live and strive to live uprightly and glorify the Lord even when it's not popular. We're told to to treasure, we, we, we are to treasure our communion with him. We're to regularly repent of our sin and turn to faith in Christ and to depend upon the ministry of the Word and the Spirit for our sanctification. We're to live in light of the gospel in such a way that our marriages and and our families and our parenting and our friendships all benefit from who we are in Christ. We're to be faithful in the ordinary day-to-day life whether we're at home or whether we're in our neighborhoods, whether we're at school or whether we're at work or in our covenant community of faith. We're to serve and meet the needs of those who are sad and who are grieving and who are lonely and afraid, those who are sick and in pain and those who are poor and needy. We're to be prepared at all times to give a defense for the hope that we have. We too are to be heralds of righteousness. We are to live as those who have received gratuitous mercy. 
And we're, and we're to live this way in the midst of a culture that not only uh, that isn't just disagreeable, but is hostile toward Christ and those who seek to follow Him. And the older we get, and the worse it gets, the more resolute we should become. Well, Noah's obedience is so important that God's assessment of his righteousness, his judgment of Noah's righteousness, not only has implications for Noah, it has implications for Noah's family. Again, remember from last week in verse 18 of chapter 6, God said, I will establish my covenant with you, singular Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. The covenant of grace was made that was made with Adam after the fall in Genesis 3.15 was reaffirmed with Noah. But Noah and his family received the benefits. The family benefited from the fact that God had chosen Noah. The family benefited from God showing favor to Noah. This week we read in verse 1 of chapter 7 that the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you singular, are righteous before me in this generation. The Lord judged Noah to be righteous, but Noah and his family received the benefits. Noah himself was declared righteous, but his entire family entered the ark. Not only was Noah preserved, but his family was preserved as well. And there are two important things that we need to take away from that first notice that God's pattern God's typical pattern has always been to work through households the covenant promises are for believers and their children children have always been a part of the visible community of faith and that's what we have here in the ark a visible covenant community of faith And the children were apart. Secondly, notice this, that Noah and his family were not delivered from the flood. They were delivered through the flood. The ark passes through, safely, the waters of judgment. Listen to these words of Derek Thomas. He said, God does not remove Noah and his family from the sphere of his judgmental action." He does not raise this family to somewhere in the heavens and then return them again. They too must endure the judgment, but God will ensure they are not destroyed. The ark was not a luxury cruise liner. Noah was locked in a zoo with his in-laws. We dare not sentimentalize what this meant for him. God's righteousness is something witnessed up close and personal. Having entered the ark in an orderly and some would say even a ceremonial fashion, it was the Lord, it was the Lord who shut them in. Why were they able to pass through the waters? The Lord had shut them in. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God called them. He called them in. He sealed them in. 
And the chaos that would ensue on the outside would not be experienced on the inside. There was chaos and destruction outside. There was commotion inside. If we're realistic, if we're realistic about it, there had to be commotion inside, but there was also safety and peace. And that safety and security was not established by human effort. Again, Calvin says this, the waters were not restrained from breaking in upon the ark by pitch or bit human only, but rather by the secret power of God and by the intervention of His hand. And of course, brothers and sisters, we know that our salvation and deliverance through judgment comes through and in Christ. He is the ark of our salvation. He is the only door through which we may go in. He is, or it is, because we have been united to Him and are in Him that we are safe and secure in the midst of the world in which we live. Our security is sure only because the Lord has shut us in. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. No one will snatch us out of His hand. Our security has nothing to do with our own effort. Our salvation is sure because He has promised to never let us go. And yet remember, we've been called to endure. We've been called to endure to the end. Brothers and sisters, we are not waiting for some secret rapture. We will not be raised to somewhere in the heavens and then returned again. We too must endure judgment. But God will ensure we are not destroyed. Our hope is in Him. And that brings us to the last point. The prevailing waters of the flood. The day before was probably a beautiful day like today. Probably wasn't 30 degrees, but beautiful day like today. The calm before the proverbial storm. It was a life as usual. But the storm had been brewing, though people had been unaware, and it was imminent. And the storm would be like no other storm before or since. Because in a moment, Moses said, the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened and the waters prevailed. His word, not mine, he uses it four times between verses 17 and 24. Verse 18, he says, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. Verse 19 says, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 20 says, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Verse 24 says, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And that simply means that the water did not relent until everything on the outside was dead. Nothing was going to stop it. It came from above, it came from below. The water that had been separated at creation was now back together, and it washed the entire earth 
purifying the entire earth of the wickedness and corruption that had polluted it. He returned, he returned the earth back to the chaos that existed before he created it. And he did so to start over, right? begin again. It was a worldwide cleansing. And of course, we, we understand the application for sure. The judgment of sin is inevitable. The judgment of sin is inevitable. It will be universal. It will be thorough. Judgment on the wicked will happen because God will not be mocked. In the words of Alan Ross, he asks this question, can men and women pursue their lives immorally and enjoy the pleasures of this world with reckless abandon? And of course the answer is, they can, but not without paying a price. You see, the failure of those who live lives of reckless, immoral Abandon is that they live without an understanding of the danger they are in and the consequences they will face. Judgment will prevail and they will not escape it. Listen to Jesus' own words from Matthew 24. It's Matthew's version of what Grant read from Luke 17. Jesus said, but concerning that day and hour no one knows... Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all, all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the question for us tonight are questions. Are, are you awake? Are you ready? Are you awake and are you ready? The good news is that in Christ, if you are in Christ, your salvation is insured. That means it's guaranteed. You're protected. You're, you're guaranteed your protection. You're guaranteed your safety and you should not fear. You should look forward to the day of His coming. Because He has shut you in. And one of the ways that God assures us that our salvation is certain is through our baptism. You say, where are you going with this? In verse 21 of Peter's first epistle, he tells us that baptism corresponds to these events that we've been reading through of the flood. He says this, Baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected 
to him. Now, to be clear, what Peter does not do is tell us that baptism regenerates us. It's not what he's saying. But what Peter does do is remind us that it's not the washing of water that cleanses us, but it's our trust in Christ that cleanses us. And our trust is made evident by our appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, our our trust is made evident by our seeking and asking for forgiveness that God has promised is available to those who trust in Him. Now, what does that have to do with the flood? Why why end this way? Well, just as the floodwaters were this vivid demonstration of God's judgment in the days of Noah, the water of baptism is a visible reminder of God's judgment today. If we were to face the waters of judgment on our own, we would be destroyed. But if, by faith, we identify ourselves with Christ, if we, by faith, have been united to Him and found in Him, we will pass safely through just as Noah's family did. So baptism is a sign and seal of our union with Christ, and no matter when our faith is granted to us, whether that be before, during, and after our baptism, or after our baptism, our faith unites us with Jesus who saves us from judgment because He absorbed the wrath that we deserved. When we possess saving faith, the sacrament of baptism reminds us that Because we are united to Christ, we need not fear judgment. And so I wanted to end here because, again, the good news is that if you are in Christ, your salvation is insured. It's guaranteed. You are protected and safe and should not fear because you have been shut in. And you can be assured, assured of your salvation. You can be sure that that your salvation is certain and true because of your baptism. So beloved, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism, a sign and seal of God's promise to you. Do not fear. In these days, in these last days, Rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, this word of promise and hope. By your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive it? May we receive it with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. May all that be for your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen.